G'day and welcome to Property, Australia's favourite obsession. My name's Jeremy Cownan and this is a podcast where together we get to discover how and why property prices continually keep growing. And it's all to do with our five drivers of property prices. And they are technology, infrastructure, population, government and credit. See, the way these drivers interact over time with human ingenuity ensures that we continually become more productive. We create more, faster and with less inputs and at a lower cost. And all these productive gains will always manifest into higher land prices. See, improved productivity results in increased profitability. And the greater the profitability, the more money that will be spent acquiring and controlling land with the best locational advantage. Whether it be a store accessing higher foot traffic, a warehouse with better transportation links, or a unit surrounded by amenities of a cosmopolitan lifestyle. But as technology, infrastructure, population and social demands change, so will demand alter for land. And a great example of this is our humble homes. See the impact of running water and sewers, the automation of appliances and changes to the family nucleus all impacted the design and functionality of our homes. And like today, Past health pandemics also gave rise to changes in the way in which we lived. So joining me today to discuss how architectural styles and designs have changed over time in response to government initiatives, technology, infrastructure, family size, health, and a general rise in living standards is research fellow and curator of UniSA's Architectural Museum, Dr. Julie Collins. Julie, welcome to Property, Australia's favourite obsession. Hi, Jeremy. It's really good to be here. So, Julie, you are the um, uh, research fellow and curator of the University of South Australia's Architecture Museum, and you've currently got an exhibition on display, Modern Living, at home in South Australia, 1890 to 1960. Now, we're going to get onto that in a little bit, but I wanted to ask you first, you wrote a book just a little while ago called The Architecture Landscape of Health, a historical perspective on therapeutic places, 1790 to 1940. It's a bit of a mouthful for yep, me. That's right. That's, uh, you started that research and, and, and started the book before the pandemic hit, didn't you? That's right, yeah. So that started a couple of years earlier. Um, but I'd been interested in um, tuberculosis sanatoria in particular for quite a quite a long time. Um, here in South Australia, we've got Nanyara up near Belair, which was an early tuberculosis sanatoria from around about the turn of the century. So I, that's where the interest kind of started, um, looking at the way that buildings were designed with windows that could be open, with hard surfaces that could be hygienically washed, um, and with veranda and exposure to nature as part of the building and as part of the therapy. So people went and stayed up there and recovered from the disease and also learned how to manage their disease um, when tuberculosis was a real problem um, globally, really. Um, and it wasn't until the mid-20th century that they developed vaccines and treatments that um, made the buildings no longer necessary. But yet now we're faced with a pandemic where a lot of those architectural designs would be very handy, wouldn't they? That's right. I mean, um, fresh air is something which has come to the fore again, um, and we're especially talking about it here in Australia with regards to hotel quarantine and the idea of ventilation in enclosed spaces. So prior to air conditioning, the only way to get fresh air was was through openings, um, which we call windows and doors, um, which really sound like a good idea to me. <laughs> it's interesting, like, as you said, I mean, the, the issues that we've had in hotel quarantine have been very much around that whole, you know, not being able to get fresh air in the ventilation and air conditioning systems um, and of course as you said the cleanliness of being able to clean surfaces and stuff it's uh, you know there's a lot we can take out of there isn't there? That's right I mean these are kind of um, known quantities which Florence Nightingale was talking about um, in her notes on nursing um, back in the previous century so um, these kind of ideas they work generally when we don't have cures or vaccines um, generally we've got to modify our behaviour or our environment. But I find this really interesting, like when you actually go back and have a look historically with architecture, that there's a lot that architecture plays in this in, in this sphere, isn't it? Um, when we think of, you know, the development, or maybe you might want to pass a comment on the development of the, um, uh, you know, city parks, um, you know, how they came about to be about. 
Well, that's right. I mean, city parks um, didn't always necessarily used to be open to the public. So they're relatively recent. And when I say that, I mean, they're kind of 18th and 19th century development. And when the Industrial Revolution came along and people really needed to escape the, the city and the crowded living quarters, public parks were a really great space to be in. Um, and um, the government was encouraging them at that time, the local government, because it was a really good and healthy um, form of recreation compared to being, um, you know, stuck in factories doing work all day. Well, what do they call them? The urban lungs? is that? Well, that's right, yeah. The, the, the fresh air, the cleaning of the air that the parks were thought to do. Um, and which trees, trees, you know, these days do the same thing. So they're a great, they're a great um, facility that any city can have. You mentioned before too, with regards to sanitation, that um, those early quarantine facilities, you know, had hard, clean surfaces, etc. And that's to me another striking um, uh, progression that's occurred in architecture. That as we've you know moved along and progressed, that uh, the lines, the architectural lines, have become much cleaner. Um, the way in which you live is much more sanitary. Um, you know, much more sparse, etc. Even, you know, when you think about those futuristic movies where, you know, moving into the future, we seem to get, you know, further and further, almost removed into a colder and clinical environment, don't we? Yeah, well, that's right. And um, you kind of notice that during that 20th century period when all of a sudden um, the the decorative timber work, the, um, the clutter of the Victorian area, the, the rugs and the curtains and the heavy fabrics started to be um, replaced by the clean surfaces, the streamlined designs. Um, and part of that was due to the, the fear of dust and the germs which lurked in dust during that period and, and the need to clean them as well. So that hygiene really started to um, have an impact in the architectural design, which we can see in the modern period particularly. Yeah, it's really quite interesting, isn't it? And I have to say thank you. I caught up with you yesterday and you gave me a little private tour of the um, um, uh, of your display yesterday um, here in SA. So I definitely encourage people to check it out. Do you want to let them know where it actually is? Yeah, so the Modern Living Exhibition is on display for the History Festival in South Australia. Um, it's on from the 5th to the 28th of May in the Bob Hawke Prime Ministerial Centre's Kerry Packer Civic Gallery, which is in the Hawke Building of the University of South Australia City West Campus. So that's down on the corner of North Terrace and Fen Place in the city. Excellent. I'll put a link in the show notes to help people along. But one of the things that really, well, there's a few things that really struck me yesterday upon reflection um, of what we looked through. And definitely, you know, we continually talk about what we see as the five drivers of property prices, um, being technology, uh, infrastructure, population, you know, government, government granted licenses, and of course, you know, the ever important credit. And Looking yesterday at the designs and the transformation, it's really very apparent how much influence, you know, technology and also um, the way in which the population wants to live, you know, changed architecture and architectural designs. Um, and, you know, just like we started out by looking, you know, at that, started at the 1880s with the, um, the, the workers' cottage. And, you know, the first thing that's obviously very apparent is, you know, you've got the outhouse out the back. Well, that's right, yeah. I think one of the really big changes which occurred from that kind of um, 19th century into the 20th century was the bringing of um, bathrooms and toilets and laundries in under the main roof. Um, and we can see, still see the evidence of this in our property that these days, um, looking in some of the older cottages around um, the inner suburbs of most major Australian cities, there might be remnants um, you can find of the, the old um, outhouse out the back. The and thunderbox the, out that's the back. That's right, <laughs> and, and the back lane running along yeah. the back of these. Um, homes where the night cart used to come and collect the what they called night soil. Um, so bringing uh, sanitation, so um, the sewerage lines and also fresh running water into homes enabled people to have their bathrooms and toilets indoors. Um, and that was a really big um, change which, which happened. It all of a sudden changed the way the house functioned and where these rooms were located um, and the increase in terms of um, plumbing lines and, and whether the water was coming from the front or back of the property started to um, impact the the room plan. So um, rather than them being down the back, they might start appearing closer to the bedrooms. So the actual room planning um, changed through that technology. And you're right too about, you know, the impact that 
running water and electricity had on housing design and the way in which it functions, you know, it, it's, it had a huge impact, didn't it? That's right. And um, I think also the, the kitchen, which was um, sometimes in the um, previous century, that was where the, the bathing occurred in a, in a copper with mm. hot water, which had been heated over the fire and people would be bathing in the kitchen area and doing their laundry um, out the back in a copper, which had been, you know, dragged out and filled with hot water in the back garden. Um, so those kinds of things, they affected us socially and, and the way that we um, behaved within the house, as well as impacting where the walls were and where the doors were and the windows and that kind of thing. You mentioned before about open air and, you know, that being one of the major, sunshine and, and, and fresh air being one of the major ways in which uh, health issues were dealt with. And I must admit, I you mentioned yesterday about the sleep outs and I cannot believe that, um, you know, I've pulled sleep outs down, I've <laughs> renovated sleep outs, I've walked through a thousand of them and it never occurred to me as to why, you know, so many of them, you know, surely you see them that were often there, they've been later um, glassed in or whatever, but quite often still you see them with just the open air with the wire and stuff. And it never occurred to me as to, I just had just thought it was just a cheap, you know, construction methodology that they were using. Yeah, well, that's right. I found that quite interesting as well. I mean, and this is something which I've, I've found has emerged out of um, tuberculosis and, and, um, tuberculosis sanatoria, one of the um, early ways they dealt with it was by having open-air sleeping. Um, they had open-air schools as well, which they developed um, to deal with that disease because it was transmitted through the air. So um, it's really interesting the way that came into domestic design and the sleep-out would have lattice on the windows or fly wire here in Australia, we would, we would be quite familiar mm. with. Um, and that really was a place where people who were um, ill with respiratory diseases would spend the night and sleep outdoors. Um, and, yeah, but as you say, it was a cheap way. It was a really cheap way of getting extra rooms on a place as well. So that was an additional, um, yeah, bonus. And can we talk maybe about the impact that um, electricity has had as well on the house? As you said, um you know, uh, you know the, the the concern about dust and and mm. etc. And obviously, having more light and and being able to see better in the house is going to bring some of those things to becoming you know more front and center of, of people's yeah, thoughts. Yeah, I think it was kind of a little bit of a double-edged sword for the housewife <laughs> um, who had to do all the cleaning because all of a sudden, once you had electricity, um, an electric light flooding through the homes, all of a sudden you couldn't hide much of that dirt or dust um, anywhere. Um, so it really brought about um, the need for greater cleaning and things like that. And then, you know, with the vacuum cleaner and mechanical kind of um, ways of cleaning that came along, carpet sweepers and that sort of thing, um, all of a sudden cleanliness became something which was, there was increasing demand for the kind of cleanliness um, in the home. Um, and yeah, you can see it in terms of you go down the supermarket aisle mm. with all the cleaning products Production. today, it really burgeoned and became um, a marketing device. So once we could see the dirt, we needed to clean the dirt um, and that was kind of quite cashed in on. So we started back um, We started back at the work... Actually, no, before I get onto the workers' cottage, we'll come back to the workers' cottage. Can you talk about how did architecture become a profession? So um, there were always architects, um, people doing what we consider as architecture um, for a very long time. In terms of the professional development of it, um, actually here at UniSA we had um, the first architecture course in South Australia um, and only the second in Australia. So our architecture school here dates back to 1906. So we were um, actually teaching it for a long time. But it wasn't until the late 1930s that the registration of architects um, became law here in South Australia where we had architectural practice. You had to be registered to call yourself an architect and you still do. Um, and that really developed the professional idea of itself. So it kind of started to um, make boundaries around itself. So there was um, interior designers, there were town planners, there were architects and they started to develop their own distinct professions and specialise in those professions, which brought about, um, you know, the idea of the architect designed house um, as a selling point is still something we hear about today. Mm. So it really kind of brought about a, a series of um, ways of practice that um, we kind of still know today. So 
Around the turn of the century, who would have done the architectural work for construction of a, of a dwelling? Would it, would it have been the builder as such? Or? So um, architects were still working, um, but generally they would have been working for the more wealthier clients, um, kind of like we have today. Mm -hmm. um, but builders also worked as architects um, and uh, plans were developed by lots of different people and, and you also find um, homeowners developing their own plans as well. Um, there were kind of standard designs too. So you could get plan books, which would be books full of plans of houses which you could adapt and use um, and give to your builder and they'd work them up and, um, yeah, and build your home. We also didn't have um, a our build, we had various building acts over the years, but in 1923, um, one of the building acts, which meant that you had to have drawn up plans, submitted to council um, and kept for a certain number of years, meant that that's actually where we find, um, in terms of museum, the museum here, um, a lot of the documentation really burgeons from 1923 onwards because of that regulation. So what happened before 1923? We just... Well, we, they they still drew them up and things like that, but there wasn't the kind of the necessary necessary um, x number of copies that had to be made and lodged and that type of thing. So we've still got earlier plans, um, but quite often they're um, for wealthier clients or larger, more public buildings. Um, trying to find house plans um, earlier than the nineteen twenties can be a bit of a needle in a high haystack yeah. type um, thing. Yeah. So how did that work then? Um, Obviously, the, the, the government um, or developer acquired some land. They laid out some streets, etc., um, as a normal developer would. Um, you know, in these days, as you said, the, the blocks would be sold. You'd apply for council mm -hmm. approval to build a dwelling on it. Was it exactly the same style of process that went through there? Or? Not so much. It was very haphazard um, and kind of laissez-faire um, in the kind of the early part of the century. Um, it wasn't really until the town planning um, and housing kind of development um, became a really important thing kind of just following that um, World War One period. Um, here in South Australia, Charles Reid um, came over and he was one of our... He was our first government town planner and he was responsible in part for Colonel Light Gardens, which was a garden suburb developed on garden city ideas. Um, and that was one of our, our most comprehensively planned development sort of suburbs um, at the time. And from there on, we, we had government town planners in various guises. When we think of architectures, architects today, you know, they everything's computer drawn. Um, it's very precise. You know, there's 3D modelling that we see. Um, you know, it's very advanced. Um, you know, we're talking... Uh, around the turn of the century, you know, a pen and a paper, a protractor and a ruler. Um, you know, it struck me yesterday, you know, that there were blueprints, literally. Mm -hmm. yep. um, do you want to maybe talk about, you know, the tools that an architect back then yeah. had at their disposal? Absolutely. So, yeah, it was all hand drawing. Um, and the blueprint in itself is is really, I think, for some of your listeners who might um, understand the photographic process as it was when we had film that we used to put in the back of our cameras, um, the blueprint's really a, a, a similar process. Um, you have a sensitised paper, which is a blueprint paper. You put a drawing, which has been done on a translucent paper, like a tracing paper, over that, expose it to light and then development, develop it with chemical baths and you'll get the blueprint. So you'll get... Um, basically a negative so the blue will be the background and the white lines where the wasn't exposed to the light will stay white um, and that's the the idea behind the idea of the blueprint um, but we st I mean we still had models um, and you can see one sitting on over there in the corner um, we've got a model of the old savings bank building on King William Street from 1939 and I had that as a money box as a kid yeah I think many people did um, and that's the original architect's model so um, you know it does the same thing as, um, you know, you can fly around that, <laughs> so to speak, but it, it gives the same impression. It communicates. So these are really just communication tools. So what we would use as digital communication these days and fly-throughs um, on the computer screen, they, they basically were communicating very similar things through um, the blueprints and the hard, real-life wooden model, timber model, as this one was. Much of the design... Um has really come out of or in response to 
Um, I would have said health, technological changes, um, how our community lived, and also government constrictions and, and incentives as to where and how they wanted us to build. Um, you got any comment on that? Yeah, I think um, especially the government controls, they really come to the fore during times um, of war, for instance, during the World War II period. It's very evident um, with the government restrictions um, in terms of um, uh, material shortages, um, which um, meant that houses could only be a certain size during that period, and also in terms of labour shortages and things like that. So the, the economics behind it is kind of really does control um, what people were building. But in a way, it encouraged them to be more innovative. So sometimes these restrictions on room size, um, on um, the floor play area and things like that meant that people had to think up, you know, what what can I do with the money I've got and mm. what can be the best design that I can get? Um, and I think sometimes that really makes solutions really fantastic um, Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. brings so. out the innovation. As you said, it's that's... You know, when we get put ourselves under stress and, and we really have to find a solution, you know, we're pretty creative beings. Yeah, that's right. I think, and I think the uh, one of the examples in the exhibition of that was the South Australian Home Builders Club, where people couldn't get um, loans from banks to build, and, and this was during the uh, 1945 to 1965. So they were banding together and um, building for each other. So it was really um, groups of people. Um, working within the, the circumstances, using what they could um, and learning to build and learning new skills in order to get the home which they, they really desired. So this is a really interesting concept that we've seen this you know, at different times throughout history where what you're saying is that it was essentially a cooperative where um, you would buy into it, would you? Would you put, put down some money and then your labour as well? I think the money was really, really... Um, uh, I think you had a joining fee and <laughs> you had your little insurance fee, which was actually quite um, quite cheap, really, but it was the hours that you were investing in it. So you would have to do X number of hours um, to prove that you were serious about um, being part of the Home Builders Club and then you would do another um, X number of hours and once you'd logged a certain number of hours, the rest of the club would go onto your site and start building your footings and your foundations. You weren't allowed to work on your own site, but you were working on other people's sites. Then you'd have to accrue a certain number of more hours and the walls would go up on your home. So you could watch your home going up. Sometimes it took quite a few years um, and you'd learn new skills. So the people who were part of this club were bakers or bank tellers or um, postmen or mm, policemen. Mm. Um, they didn't have the trade skills, but they learnt them from their colleagues on site um, and, and gained new skills. And it's really interesting. We interviewed um, a lot of these people um, in about the year 2000 and the self-belief that it gave them, knowing that they could build a home of their own for their family, um, they said they, they felt they could tackle anything after doing that. It really gave them a sense of achievement and a sense of pride too. And that came out of them not being able to get that home any other way. So it came from a position of um, where they thought, oh, no, I can't do anything, to a position of absolute pride and, and standing them in really good stead for the rest of their life. Now, I believe that we're talking significant numbers here of, of owner-builders as such, as, as high as 25% yeah. um, of homes that were built around, let's call it the 1950s, were actually um, owner-builders. That's right. It was a, a real boom time. And Australia also had um, one of the la I mean, had one of the largest kind of uh, numbers of um, owner occupiers as well and I think it probably still would have quite high compared to other places in the world so yeah um, it definitely was um, a force to be reckoned with the owner builder and I think um, you know going down the hardware store today you kind of think some of the people who are doing you know we're all love, love to be the love home warrior aren't that's they? right exactly and I mean renovate home renovation shows and home renovating is still a really big significant part of um, I think the Australian weekend culture yeah 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 I mean it just goes to show once again that 
nothing's really new, is it? Yeah, well, that's right, exactly. And I think I think we, we do love our homes here in Australia. Um, it's kind of there's still a big emotional connection as well as um, that sense of pride in um, being able to do it yourself and, and have, mm. you know, mm. have your home. You mentioned to me yesterday um, about the role of women in the 1950s that um, – in the, the the 20s and 30s, there was quite a movement, a women's movement into the workforce. And then that changed a bit in the 50s, which had quite interesting economic and architectural and social issue, uh, social repercussions. Yeah, I think it's really interesting um, the way we kind of think about women um, in terms of um, their relationship to the home. Because um, quite often these days, well, back in the um, the era of the nuclear family in that kind of post-war um, baby boom era, women were really seen to be kind of mother who was at home as the housewife um, and a lot of popular culture reflects that as well. Um, yeah, as I was saying uh, yesterday, during that kind of earlier part of the 20th century, women were really quite um, gaining gaining ground in the workforce. Uh, women in Australia, particularly South Australia, got the vote really early on uh, compared to a lot of places around the globe. So um, World War II kind of put a little bit of a spanner in the works in very many ways. And, and one of them was the fact that during the war, women were working in the munitions factories. They were doing a lot of um, men, what were traditionally called men's jobs yep. in factories. Um, but when the servicemen returned, to give them a job and to make sure there was um, something, you know, approaching full employment, a lot of women were ushered back into the home um, and encouraged to have children um, and that all kept the, the economy ticking over quite nicely. But it also changed the way that the home was kind of being uh, conceptualised. So the kitchen started to become very much the hub of the the home, um, it opened up towards the dining room and opened up towards play or living areas. So mum in the kitchen could keep an eye on the children who were playing. And this really is reflecting that baby boomer kind of era. So there was a baby boom and the little kids um, running around and, and playing mm. out in the backyard were um, being watched by mum from the kitchen window. Um, the kitchen didn't necessarily always um, have that kind of outdoor view with the plate glass windows prior to this but it really started to take off in that kind of era and you can see that in 50s 60s and 70s houses where the kitchen does generally look over the backyard and over the dining room or living areas so you can see those social repercussions being evident being made evident in the planning i also thought it was really evident yesterday when we were looking at some of those kitchens um, especially those 1950s, those classic 1950s kitchens that you see the mechanisation um, starting to flow through, um, you know, with the with the advent of white goods um, into the home. And also it was really striking, I thought, that you, know, you see the increase in cupboard space um, for obviously, um, you know, the way in which we eat started to really change, the mm. way we prepared our expectations and, of course, you know, the way in which we, um, you know, prepared and served food as well. Yeah. That it, it, it required much more space in the kitchen, didn't it? Yeah, and, it, well, apparently it required much more equipment. Um, <laughs> um, so it's quite interesting. And also thinking that South Australia, we were manufacturing white goods here. So that industrialisation which occurred in that World War, post-World War II period um, was really interesting. Um, so white goods like fridges, but also um, the, the, I guess they're the, the mix masters and yeah. the um, toasters and the sandwich presses. And um, all of a sudden you could get a machine that would do every single different job. And yeah. all of a sudden you need a lot more cupboards to keep these in. And I think we're still suffering from that today. <laughs> um, and I think that's probably partly behind the um, the butler's pantry. and, yeah, and the need trying to hide it away. Yeah, that's right. I've got so much equipment that I use once a year. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that kind of um, that movement towards mechanisation, whereas um, prior to that it would have been a bowl and a spoon and those, mm. you know, a hand whisk. Um, so I think that the kitchen was really having to actually, you know, cater for a lot more um, specific um, food um, food chores. Yeah, food yeah. chores. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it feels like sometimes. But, yeah. The 50s was a really interesting 
um, development architecturally wise because maybe the 40s a little bit, but definitely the 50s, you know, we see the advent of the carport as well, don't we? And the garage starts to become uh, quite prevalent, obviously, you know, with the um, with the way in which cars were now being used within society that mm. there was no need when you had the worker's cottage and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, when you're in the 50s, you know, carport garages and stuff start becoming vogue. That's right. And they also start to take over that front facade of the house as well. So rather than the front door and the path and the front garden kind of being the public face of, of the home, the carport started to actually take over a bit of that, which I think... Um, I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. I think it's kind of led to a lot of loss of um, that neighbourhood interaction um, and that kind of permeability um, along the streetscapes. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting when you think of um, the house the house design, the bicycle was the, one of the um, modes of transport in that kind of um, first part of the 20th century and then when the car started to become more affordable for people um, and then it wasn't just one car, it was two cars and mm. now it's like three cars. Now it's four cars. Well, that's now right, exactly. It's kind of um, all of a sudden where are you going to put them? And with the disappearance of, of the back lane, um, which was no longer um, required, um, all of a sudden the only way into a block was the front, the front. so that's where the, um, the carport took over. Yeah. As you said, though, it did, no, the, 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 the change in transportation did change society immensely. Um, uh, you know, previous to that, you know, you would sit out on the front veranda and you would talk to your neighbours as they as they went past, wouldn't you? I mean, that was the way in which mm. you socialised and interacted. And yet now when we move into the, you know, 50s and post-50s eras, you know, you don't have that area to sit at the front because you drive your car in, you walk in the front door, close the door and you're in your home and there's little, uh, you know, interaction. I think so. And I think that's really interesting these days with um, quite often a door leading from the entirely enclosed garage straight into the home. You don't even go out of the garage and into the mm. front door. You're literally going from the garage into the living area. Um, and I think that yeah, at a greater scale, I think that can, you know, lessen those ties that we have with our neighbours. And sometimes it's only when you're out there kind of doing a bit of weedium on the nat on the nature strip that you actually... Yeah. It's amazing how many people stop in with their dogs and have a chat and yeah, it's, yeah. it's just great, actually. Um, so, I don't know, I, I think bring back the front garden. <laughs> <laughs> I know my grandmother used to love sitting on the mm, front porch. Absolutely, yeah. That's it, talking to yeah. her neighbours as they... As watch the world go by. That's right, yeah. Um, and we mentioned before about the sanitary side of things. And again, the 50s was a really good, it was a really pivotal change in architecture with the way in which, as we said, lighting, those clean, minimalistic surfaces, easy to clean, you know, the laminates, etc., started to be used. Um, you know, it did yeah. change the way um, we used our houses and, and we lived in those houses. Yeah, I think by the 50s um, it was well and truly accepted, um, the clean lines and the flat surfaces and the lack of ornamentation. It was an accepted style, so it wasn't something that was a bit strange that um, just a few architects were doing. It had moved right through into, you know, project homes and those kinds of things and right through into the 60s. Um, the big plate glass windows were very much more affordable um, and something which people were really desiring. So, um, yeah, large windows, um, big double doors which opened up between dining and living areas, um, flat surfaces, um, lino on the floors, as well as, um, yeah, windows which would still open because air conditioning had didn't really become something which was standard um, probably well into the kind of the late 1970s. So um, houses were very much responding to things that had occurred earlier in the century, but um, people had accepted it and it became a style really by, by that kind of 50s, 60s period. If we contrast that to the... Um, the 20s and 30s, um, in Adelaide we had uh, a suburb, you mentioned before, Kernelite Gardens, um, that was developed um, and was seen as a, as a garden suburb. Do you want to maybe explain what that means and how it came about? Yeah, so um, the garden suburb idea started... Um in, in Europe and in the UK, um, there was someone called Unwin who was very... Um, 
important in that kind of de- development following um, Ebenezer Howard's, I- Howard's idea of the Garden City. And there really became a Garden City movement which spread globally. And Charles Reed, who I mentioned earlier as the government town planner here in South Australia, he um, bought that idea. He was one of the people who brought that idea to Australia. He did a town planning tour um, during that kind of period of the, the kind of the World War one period um, and he talked about it and showed um, what were lantern slides back then so um, they're kind of projections um, yes slides. they were called lantern slides they were glass lantern slides where he'd show slums compared to the garden suburb and and really talk about the way that streetscaping and um, wider roads and fresh air and blocks that were big enough for people to have gardens um, were really important in terms of the health and happiness of, um, yeah, the suburban dweller. So the, the suburb really started to develop, to develop in that 1920s period. So it was less about um, smaller inner-city um, kind of dwellings but and very much more about having your own block of land where you could have your garden and do what you wanted in your backyard and have a house that was freestanding. Um, and that really started to develop. And the transport helped with that. So trains and public transport, trains and trams even in Adelaide, those routes really started to develop and suburbs were built further out and there was a lifestyle. So you would go and work in the city um, or in kind of um, somewhere like Glenelg or Nord, some of those, those what were previously... What were industrial yeah, areas. Yep. Well, what, yeah, and we were kind of previously kind of distinct villages and the suburbs started to fill in in between those. So that really developed what we now know as suburbs um, here in Adelaide. I mean, there were distinct villages of Unley and um, mm. around uh, Theberton and those places which... Uh, you can still see them. Um, quite often there's a town hall. might not be used as a town hall now. Yeah. But there's those, um, like Thebiton Town Hall, you probably yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, which is Theb- <laughs> Yeah, which is um, Thebby Theatre kind of down that way. Um, so those kind of buildings still stand out and you can start to see where those original villages were. But it was really the development of the suburbs in between those um, that took off and then they kept, you know, joining up Um Right up until today, where now I think we've pretty much joined everything yeah. up and we're spreading out um, north and south and into the hills and over the hills. There we go. Mm. But th- th- that 1920s era, as we spoke about before, I mean, that's where, you know, Adelaide was a planned city. So, you know, there's quite a bit of structure around, you know, how it was put together. But the 20s and 30s really marked the change where there was much more thought that town planning, whereas moving away from that haphazard, um, you know, just knock it up as, you know, as needed that that occurred before that. Yeah, that's right. And um, that continued on. Um, one of the really um, best examples of how detailed they went with um, town planning was Elizabeth, which um, happened into the 1950s. And Elizabeth um, was a very um, highly planned Um, town. Um, It was associated with the industrialisation and we all know of the factories out that way like Holden and those kind of big factories which provided workplaces. Um, But Elizabeth was uh, developed around the idea of neighbourhood centres so there'd be schools and churches and small local shops um, and they would service a distinct neighbourhood unit and there'd be uh, quite a few of them put together and then there'd be the main city centre of Elizabeth. Back then it was a satellite town. Yeah. Now it's it yeah, pretty much part is of. part of the suburbs. Um, but that was a highly um, planned um, development which um, occurred in that kind of 50s period. And we're talking like it was a 45,000-person development, so it's not some small, mm. you know, couple of houses, is it? I mean, it was a major development out it there. It really was. And um, it was advertised right across... Um, in, in England, there's advertising material for Elizabeth, which kind of um, shows how much of a draw it would have been to come to, you know, sunny South Australia. You'd be able to get a job and a house in a planned development with shops and schools and churches and everything you needed. Um, and it was very much um, a selling point um, for South Australia. It was a bit of a blueprint for what... Um the modern town planning development or urban development was that they wanted to use in in Australia, wasn't it? It's, mm. It was almost the, I guess, the forerunner to a to a you know Delphin Realty sort of thing. 
Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that's a very good um, point. And I think the fact that they were designing the services um, and, like, I'm not just talking about um, water, gas, um, um, that kind of thing. I'm talking about, you know, the schools and the shops and the post offices and all of those, the banks and all those things that you need in a suburb straight up when you move in. Um, they were being there and they were being provided. Um, and I think that's something that's really, yeah, worth kind of, yeah, remembering and acknowledging. Mm. Mm. Can I take you back? When we spoke about uh, Colonel Light Gardens, one of the things that we didn't really touch on was the role of the banks because, as we said, in the in the 40s, there was the um, the idea where we would get together a, a, as a community or a group and, 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 and form a co-op and, and help each other build our houses. But... In the 20s and 30s, um, the banks actually had a very large role to play with this because it was easier to get funding for a new def- new house than it was an existing house, wasn't it? Mm. And the banks also, interestingly, um, often employed their own architects, which I find quite amazing um, thinking about it these days um, in terms of housing provision. So the State Bank um, had its own architect and I think in Colonel Light Gardens, the Thousand Home Schemes, which um, some of your listeners might have heard of, um, was one of these schemes where the State Bank architect actually had designed these and different facades were able to be chosen. So many of these were in Colonel Light Gardens, but there were also Thousand Homes homes, which are you'd probably recognise. They're kind of red brick. Um, they've got bungalow-esque, I guess, features, so veranda um, and a lower-pitched roof. Um, and there were some of those in various suburbs around the city as well as um, at Colonel Light Gardens. So here we had the bank not only providing the funding but providing the architectural services as such for you know what a client could build on mm. on the block of land. It, it's I mean they were almost I mean they weren't developing as such because they weren't owning and selling the land, but it's almost partly the role of the developer in that point, isn't well, I it? Think, I think they were also making sure that, I mean, it was the, their investment in a way um, was going to be sound by providing house plans that were solid and that they knew, um, you know, were not going to fall down. Um, other financial institutions such as Colonial Mutual Life, so mm-hmm. CML, they were um, also publishing brochures of plans and ideas about how to get the best um, value for your money. So they were they were educating the public as well about housing design and, and what they saw effectively was a good investment for them, I guess, in a way. I guess it makes sense in the way that, um, you know, now if you want to do, if you want to build something, you need to get uh, engineering um, done on that. Um, whereas, you know, back in the the 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s, there wouldn't have been any engineering that would have been done, which I guess is reflective of the the size of the rooms that were typically built and the spans that we're talking. So the engineering would have been fairly minimal, but it's still, I guess, it makes sure that they meet minimum standards and targets. Well, I guess, I guess um, the interesting thing would be that the bank, by providing the plans, would have had all of this checked out um, mm. earlier. So by providing the plans and the specifications and that kind of thing for the um, prospective homeowner, they would have already been over all of that. They probably would have um, yeah, got it checked by architects and engineers and sanitary inspectors um, and all the various kind of people. So it would be ready and good to go. Um, so it probably um, made the practice... Um, faster, and I think yeah, people obviously were quite happy to accept the designs. They had quite a range of designs, um, and I guess um, yeah, it would have probably cost people. You know, if you're going to move this wall, it's going to cost you X number of dollars more. But yeah. quite often, um, flipping a plan or mirror imaging and that and yeah. that kind of thing was something which people did quite quite happily. So, if I've bought my block of land in Colonel Light Gardens and Bank SA is financed me and they've given me the um, instruction booklet as to, you know, what I'm going to build, um, where do I get the materials for? Do I, can I just buy it like I would an Ikea, you know, bedside table? And <laughs> is that how it comes or do I need um, to go and source the lumber and, and et cetera in the Hindu So, I mean, I, th- I think um, very much, they were very much building companies. They were quite 
not not the large um, home building type companies we know of today, but um, smaller local builders um, were quite um, prolific actually during that period. So you'll find smaller house building companies around um, and they would be able to source um, some of the, the timber yards. Um, there used to be quite a few down at Port Adelaide. Um, and brickmakers here in South Australia, we've got plenty of those, yep, um, yep. as well as stone. So the materials um, were available and te- traditionally um, the builder or what we'd now call the kind of the, the major contractor would be, um, yeah, buying all of that um, and doing it for you. So, yeah, yeah you'd, okay. you'd enter a contract with that builder generally. So, yeah. It's interesting you mention about... Um, you know the the, the, the lumber yards, etc., and like in South Australia here, you know, very clay soil. So a lot of construction was, you know, red brick, um, you know, killed fired mm. bricks. Mm. Um, as you said, a lot of stone um, in, um, you know, the, the sandstone that you see uh, in South Australia, which is very different to you know other cities where the natural resources. Brisbane sticks out with uh, with the classic te- uh, Queensland of being, you know, constructive of, of timber, etc. So, I mean, it is important to, to think about that in that context. And I guess that brings me back to where we started with regards to the um, workers' cottages that, you know, there was a lot of, you know, clay tiles and that sort of stuff and, and the ceramics for um, the sewer lines, etc. That, 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 you know, I guess modernise those uh, those building designs. That's right. Um, and I think in the exhibition um, we've got a catalogue for um, W Shearing who was um, a terracotta and tile manufacturer here in um, South Australia and they had works down at Hindmarsh, um, which is, um, yeah, around that Hindmarsh kind of area was very big brick-making area. Um, I think down even at Beverly there's a few old brick kilns still surviving. Well, the brickworks itself, yeah. Yeah, the brickworks market at, at Torrensville, um, very much um, mm. yeah, a remnant of that kind of industry. So, yeah, South Australian homes are, are quite solid um, in terms of the bricks they're made of and a, a lot of interstate people quite often comment on our architecture as being quite solid, um, with, especially with some of the beautiful stone-fronted villas and those sorts of things. But, yeah, that um, terracotta manufacture um, was something which South Australians um, excelled at and also something that South Australians went and travelled overseas. Um, Shearing travelled over to the UK to learn how to make the different terracottas and brought that technology back here. Um, Much in the same way that um, we're very good at concrete here in South Australia and part of that is due to the immigration of migrants who came from Italy with those wonderful skills, especially terrazzo skills. Mm, Um, It's quite amazing finding that lineage between um, Italy and Australia um, and the skills that came over here. So, yeah. It's interesting too, like you mentioned about the facades of those, you know, turn of the century houses here, you know, a lot of stone fronted um, uh, properties in in, in Adelaide, um, whereas through that period of the 30s and the 40s, we turned to brick, which I guess is going to be quicker and easier to construct. And then you go through into the 50s and the 60s, and there's a lot of stucco, etc. that again, you know, quickens the um, the manual, the production time or, or build uh, build time. That it is interesting how those again those uh, technologies and skills change. Um, I mentioned or asked you before about you know, the role of an architecture and what they had that you know to to work with. It, it seems to me that as construction methods mechanised more that we lost kind of the craftsmanship of um, uh, of the original builders. Would, would, would you agree with that or not? I think, um, yeah, it's really interesting in terms of um, looking at the different technologies that have come through. I mean, quite often these days we see a lot of um, tilt-up or, or slab kind of work going on. But I think we sometimes discount the fact that there's actually a different range of skills which have um, come across and, and and been learnt in order to perfect those slabs as well. So it's a different type of technology um, and maybe it's less labour intensive but sometimes the labour's just moved so rather mm. than being in the on-site brick making it's actually um, out in the, the yards where they're making these concrete um, uh, tilt-up walls and things like that because there's actually sometimes quite a fair bit of um, yeah skill that goes into you know getting the moulds right and um, getting the, you know... The engineering line. This is right, exactly. So sometimes we might think there's less 
um, you know, skills being employed, but actually they've just changed. It's it's a little bit like the way that um, hand drafting has now moved to computer-aided design drafting. So rather than with the pen and ink, we're doing it with the mouse on, and the screen. Mm. It's There's still people there with incredible skills. They're just working in a different way. I think sometimes... Um, there are still a lot of heritage skills out there as well. Um, there are still stonemasons and, and really high-quality brickies and a lot of them work on um, restoration projects too. So, yeah, it's out there. And when we think about the change in that technology, I mean, the the, the early settlers used, you know, you know, thatches, like thatched huts, et cetera. Then we had timber shingles and, you know, terracotta, metal tiles, et cetera, moving to corrugated iron to asbestos roofs and now you know we've got zinc and colour bond haven't we Mm, absolutely yeah and you can trace the kind of the ideas I mean effectively it's it's about keeping your house watertight and um and keeping you know uh, the bugs and the rodents out um and that's the same kind of things that they were been battling with um for many many years so it's just the the shape and the form of them and quite often the detailing that's that's changed a bit yeah and and you see that too, like with the the, the changes of the, the the roof lines. You know, we started very, you know, they were quite sharp, quite dramatic. Mm, the the mm. roof lines and yeah. slowly have been flattened and flattened over time. To yeah. now, we see a lot of, um, you know, skilly installed um, uh, uh, roof mm. pitches. That well, if you can call it a pitch, I guess yeah. it's got a pitch, but not much of a pitch, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And and I mean. You've got to think, um, look at how that reflects the history. So um, when Australia was invaded by the British, they brought their what they believed was great architecture with them um, and they came from a very different climate. So mm. they were coming from um, somewhere where they needed a steep roof pitch to shed the snow. Um, we, well, definitely not here in Adelaide, we didn't have any snow. Um, but the roof cavity um, provided really good insulation from the heat as yeah. well. So there are, you know, there were pros and cons to that roof pitch. And over time, it's kind of gone up and down a little bit. Um, the Skillion roof, unfortunately, doesn't provide terribly much insulation um, in terms of that kind of temperature insulation. But because we've got air conditioning, doesn't seem to matter so much. So it's um, the technology once again um, has has played a part. And when you talk about technology too, that the the change in heating and cooling of our houses has again had a huge impact. That the original um, you know um, boiler or furnace that 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 would have sat sometimes in the kitchen or sometimes just out of the kitchen. Um, and the rest of the house having fireplaces and the like? Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I think um, in terms of um, air conditioning, which we rely on both for heating and cooling these days, I mean, we wouldn't be able to have the huge expanses of plate glass um, mm. without a mechanical um, air conditioning or some better sun shading. I think one of the things which I've noticed with regards to roof is the loss of um, eaves, which provide that sun shading um, not necessarily just for the windows but for the walls because the amount of embodied heat that um, kind of builds up in those walls here in Adelaide mm, yeah. can be quite astounding. So, I mean, the roof overhang and the eaves is quite an important design feature which um, when people keep trying to squeeze their house out to the edges of the block, sometimes that is what gets lost and um, probably um, to the detriment of their um, electricity bill, I'd say. It's interesting because I actually had that as um, uh, one of the points that I was... Uh, coming away from yesterday that I was reflecting on is the, the change in the eaves and also the, the, the change in the amount of light that we let through into our houses these days compared to, you know, those, you know, sometimes feels quite pokey, quite cold, you know, workmen's cottages that they were still quite small dwellings, but, you know, they've got a, a coldness about that inherent coldness, don't mm. they? Well, that's right. And part of that is, um, is, back to the size of glass that they could get for, for the available money. Um, plate glass really only started to, um, you know, come into play in terms of the large windows we expect um, in that kind of mid-century period. So prior to that, yeah, it was only small windows and they would only let in certain amount of light mm. and heat as well. Um, yeah, so it's, it's definitely changed but once again they provide a little bit more insulation um, those thick walls of the workers cottages provide a bit more insulation during a few hot days but once we get into a heat wave then you know couldn't do much about that <laughs> yeah. that's it once the bricks heat up yeah. they're heated up aren't mm -hmm. they 
Um, what do you think too about the way in which materials, the, the, the materials that architects use have has changed um, over time? You know, is it, have we really changed materials or have we more just changed the way that we've used those materials? Well, I'm, I'm hoping that, um, and it does appear that we're a lot more conscious of the issue of sustainability um, and sustainable materials and reuse of materials um, these days. Um, when, when you think of um, how much um, building waste can go into landfill from simple renovations and from um, yeah, demolition, um, it's quite astounding um, when we, you know, we get worried about our coffee cups and things like that and the recycling of that. Yeah. But when you think of how much is thrown out when you do a kitchen renovation, um, it pales in comparison. It's, yeah, correct. Mm. So I think um, in terms of the sustainability um, issue, that's um, very much more to the front these days. Is there anything that we haven't discussed today that you'd like to add about the way in which architecture has changed? Well, I think um, one of the things which I find most interesting um, in my work here um, at the Architecture Museum is the fact that you can read so much from a building plan. It's not just a technical document that tells you where to put the walls and, and where the, the, the plumbing used to go. It's about the social and the cultural and the fact that you can understand people's lives by looking at the way they may have lived in these rooms. And you can imagine people's lives. Um, so looking at some of the heritage plans, you can start to um, get clues about the way people lived um, and about the economy, about the technology of the time, um, not just about, you know, what the walls were constructed of. So I think sometimes these visual documents provide a really good way into understanding history. That's a really pertinent point, actually, because that's very much... Um, you know, what this podcast is really about is that, you know, we see that there's five drivers and, and our whole thesis is that, um, you know, the, the, the property market just moves in a cyclical fashion. And with those five drivers, they're not going to, they're always going to manifest, but they're always going to manifest differently depending on, you know, where we are in the, in the time cycle. That, that they can't, it can't be the same. It's always going to be same, same, but different. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the way in which, society changes the way in which we want to live has huge implications on the sort of dwellings that are demanded and what someone will pay either to purchase or you know what they will pay to rent a a, a dwelling i mean it, it has huge implications yeah absolutely i, th I think that's um something and, and i think that there's a fair bit of human nature that's involved in this and, mm. and looking at the way that humans interact with those five drivers as well um, is a really important um, thing to keep in mind. And as we said, you know, we've, we've discussed today the, the differences in technologies, you know, everything from, you know, sewer and, and electricity to, you know, uh, you know shingles to asbestos, etc. cetera, um, the, the way in which that, that technology changes, the way in which craftsmanship changes, um, you know, has a very big um, impact on, you know, what's actually produced and, and how it can be produced. And even now, you know, we're what's starting to 3D print houses, which, you know, brings a whole new level of thought and discussion in itself, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. And, and in terms of, um, yeah, my work here, I work with a lot of old architectural blueprints and drawings. And what are the architectural blueprints and drawings of the future? What are these digital files going to look at and how are they going to be, you know, saved um, for future historians? That's another, that's a whole other aspect. It's really interesting stuff, isn't it? Mm, really absolutely. interesting stuff. Yep. But Julie, I have to say thank you very much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed this discussion. It's really makes you stop and think, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure, Jeremy, and um, I'm glad you got to see the exhibition. And um... Well, I was just going to mention that again. So Modern Living at Home in South Australia, 1890 to 1960 is the exhibition. I'll put a link in the show notes. So come on down and say good day to Julie and have a look because it's definitely worth a look. Um, the Uni SA Architecture Museum, is it open to the public? So we're open to the public Monday, Tuesdays and Wednesdays between 10 and 4pm by appointment only. So people can um, go onto the UniSA website and look for the Architecture Museum and it's got all contact details there. Fantastic. And where do we get a copy of your book? 
So that's available online as well. So you can probably find my homepage on the UniSA website, which has got a bit of information about um, my work here at the university. Um, and yeah, if people are interested in doing research about um, their homes or other buildings, yeah, the Architecture Museum is one of the best places to start. Excellent. I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks a lot for joining me. I really do appreciate it. Thanks to our listeners for joining us. Don't forget to like, subscribe and tell your friends about us. Remember, we'd love to help you on your property journey. So feel free to get in touch and tell us your story. I've been your host, Jeremy Cowan, and you've been listening to Property, Australia's Favourite Obsession. And until next time, let's keep obsessing about property. Any opinions or recommendations expressed should be considered general in nature as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. History and past performance do not guarantee future performance. Jeremy Cowan and Cowan & Flack Proprietary Limited are authorised representatives of PGW Financial Services, Proprietary Limited, AFSL 384713.